Welcome to Windswept and Interesting. I'm Richard Baines. I'm on at the Rewilders again this week with a man who occupies an odd place in the world of conservation. He actually started out as a wannabe trucking magnate, then turned wildlife photographer, and then turned campaigner for what you could say is a fairly hardline form of rewilding. Scotland the Big Picture is now leading the drive to bring back the lynx in Scotland and I wanted to know how and why it had transformed from a kind of news agency into a campaigning organisation. Could the same thing happen to me? If you like the chat, by the way, you can follow me or subscribe on your podcast provider and you can get me on the social media system formerly known as Twitter or even find me on LinkedIn or Facebook. So, Peter Cairns, of course, is the man, and in our chat, I probed him on greenwashing, charity funding, and that Lynx proposal. He also rather let the cat out of the bag, as it were, on a new rewilding proposal that could be transformative in the West Highlands. He first told me about where Scotland the Big Picture had come from. Scotland Big Picture, we'll call it SBP for for the sake of ease, comes from a a small core team of, of colleagues who started off as storytellers really, visual storytellers, photographers, um, writers, designers, filmmakers. So we all come from a communica- environmental communications background. We started focusing on the, the rewilding story in Scotland probably back in about 2010, 2011. And inadvertently, we became this kind of the media spokespeople for rewilding. We had the press reading ringers up saying, you're the guys that know about rewilding. Well, we never set out to be that. But at the time, we were probably the only, you know, in inverted commas, organisation willing to put our name to the word. Uh, we were always very comfortable with that, whereas others weren't. Um, so we got to the point in about 2016 where we'd been afforded this platform unwittingly. And we could either sort of rail back from that platform and go back to being commentators on the stories, journalists effectively. Or we could use this platform that had been offered to us to, to spring on as a launch pad, really. And, and we chose the latter, rightly or wrongly, um, became a charity. And now we've got our fingers in all sorts of rewilding pies, probably far too many. So we've morphed from being a group of freelance communicators, effectively, into a fully fledged charity. And those that core team actually still works within the charity, including myself, um, but the cause of the charity has evolved beyond recognition. So we've moved from being commentators on rewilding effectively to campaigners or advocates for rewilding. That's that's the fundamental shift that's taken place. Right. So it's a, it's, a, it's a change from being somebody like me, a journalist who observes these things, to, dare I say it, a propaganda... The, proper, the propaganda arm of the rewilding movement. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily use the word propaganda, but yeah, I mean, you know, we have four core focus areas. I won't bore you with all of them, but, but our primary one, the first one, is driving support for rewilding. So that's our raison d'etre, principally. Yeah, so um, that's what it does now, and that's a bit about its origins. Tell me a bit about yourself and where you're coming from. So I spent um, oh, best part of 25 years working as a, as a freelance wildlife photographer, um, back in the day, people used to pay me to travel the world taking pretty pictures of pretty animals. That's when that business model worked. When digital came in, sort of 2001, 2002, that business model very quickly evaporated. So um, I effectively had to reinvent myself, so to speak. Um, I was doing a lot of work with my, my good friend and, and still colleague, Mark Hamblin. We decided at the time that reinvention for us looked like getting into conservation storytelling. So we morphed from being 
sort of photographic guns for hire into conservation storytellers. And that's really when we started getting involved in, in what is now recognised as rewilding. It wasn't back then, but things like landscape scale, ecological restoration, species reintroductions. And we covered those stories across much of the Northern Hemisphere. I think what that gave us, as much as anything else, we, we learned about ecology, we learned about storytelling, but actually the biggest lesson that we got from that is our lessons about people and how they work psychologically, emotionally. And I think, you know, we retain that hard-won understanding of the social and cultural and political and emotional barriers um, around land use and land use change. And of course, nowhere does that manifest more than rewilding in Scotland. So those hard-won lessons from 20-odd years ago um, really have, have, have become an asset of, of what is now Scotland the big picture. That, that thing about it being about people is so important, isn't it? I mean, it's the interpersonal stuff and the interpersonal conflicts and the way people people's attitudes to it yep. are so much of the story. It's not just about observing how white-tailed eagles behave. Yep. It's how people react to them. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, we've said for a long time, re rewilding in Scotland and across the world is 20% is ecology and 80% psychology. We, we know how to, like that, yeah. you know, we know how to do the physical stuff. We know how to expand woodland. We know how to restore peatlands. We know how to reintroduce species. We've, we've not always had that knowledge, but we definitely do have it now. It, it's the cultural and social and, and, and political and economic and emotional barriers that, that prevent change at the sort of speed and scale that, you know, the likes of me would like to see. And you're in Scotland, but you're not from Scotland. Where are you from? Well, I grew up in the in the Midlands. Um, my dad worked on the railway, so we moved around quite a lot. Derby, but Nottingham? Derby, actually, yeah, 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 yeah. that was my, I, my... I spotted the accent. Oh, well, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, here's me thinking I haven't got one, but... No, no. Um, so yeah, so so I grew up there, and then we we moved here in '92, I think, so what thirty years, um, yeah, and and the, the rest is history, as it were. But that's yeah, and and I I I had a business when I was when I was eighteen, um, did what most young business people do, I guess, sort of headlong into it. I was going to build an empire, I was going to take over the world, all of those notions at the time, um, and it was really when I went, to, I, I had a holiday, and I, I can't remember what it was now. It would probably be early 90s um and went off to africa and and just you know when you've got that that little sort of space to look in on your own life from afar so to speak um just thought what the hell am i doing i i need more out i need more meaning in my life what you was know? the business you were running <laughs> well I, I dread i i hesitate to, to admit to this in a, in a climate crisis but you know it was a, it was a trucking business um yeah I had, a, I had a fleet of lorries gas guzzling lorries um, so when we came back from that trip, it was a little bit of a watershed for all sorts of reasons. Um, we sold the business with no idea what we wanted to do. I had some sort of notion around wildlife photography and tourism, but really nothing beyond that. And then through a convoluted set of circumstances, ended up in the middle of Glenfeshi with, with a blank canvas in front of me, really. And that's, that's how it started. And you have got a tourism business here as well as the big picture, which is the lodge. Yeah, so, so what, what's happened over the years is that my business um, was, was nature photography. Um, in parallel with that, my wife run, runs this and still does, um, which is a, effectively a nature hospitality business. Is that a name check your wife there? Amanda. Amanda's my wife, yeah. So we, we, we have this lodge and um, it's occupied for hopefully most part of the year by nature groups. Scotland Big Picture runs rewilding experiences from here, 
but groups like Wilderness Scotland, big big adventure company in Aviemore, they run groups. In fact, they're in at the moment. So one way or the other, there's yoga groups, there's 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 painting groups, photography groups. One way or the other, they, it's based around nature-based travel and experiences. And have you got a, a, a wider patch of land here? Yeah, we've got 150 acres here. It, it, when we moved here, it was an equestrian centre. Um, there were 52 horses. There were lots and lots of red deer in the fields every night. Um, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, with our highfalutin ideas around nature tourism and, and rewilding, although it wasn't called that at the time, we were a little bit of an island in a in a sea of hostility, really. Um, you know, we're surrounded by livestock farmers and foresters. And if you look towards the south, Glenfeshie Estate, which was a traditional stalking estate, and nobody could really understand what we were about, what we were trying to do. And at that time, they were still feeding the deer. Absolutely. And, and in the winter to make sure that they survived yeah. sufficient quantities to shoot them. Uh, absolutely. And and although, you know, Glenfeshie is a big chunk of land, obviously what they do on that land permeates down the glen to, to us. So, yeah, as I say, we used to have, I think the, the most number of deer we, we counted in the field in any one night was 102. Yeah. Um, and then coupled with 57 horses, that's a hell of a lot of grazing pressure on the land. Yeah. And then, of course, you'll know the story around the, the cull in Glenfeshie and, and the deer management regime that's persisted ever since. My, my first environmental story. Yeah. yeah, well, I, yeah. I, I followed that story. I mean, I know Thomas, as, as you do, and I followed that story really, really closely. And again, it was really interesting. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, putting, putting the deer uh, issue aside for a moment, having spend a little quite a number of years talking um one of my first assignments was was following the the wolf reintroduction story in 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 the u.s so i spoke a lot to ranchers and hunters and scientists and researchers about wolves and their attitudes to wolves and then the glenfeshie story came about and although the species was different and the characters were different and the country was different actually the story was was pretty much exactly the same and it was all to do with resistance to or fear of change who was bringing about that change, who was the players, who was in control, and whether it's deer in Scotland or bears in Finland or wolves in Montana. As I say, you can change the components, but the story remains pretty much the same. And it's a people story. It's all about people and their attitudes and perceptions and priorities and motivations and values. And the, the person who became key to that was our billionaire friend, Anders Hock Paulson. Well, yes and no. Um, Thomas, really, I would say. Yeah, Thomas McDonald. Yeah, he, he was the catalyst. Um, but but you're right, Anders came along and, and had his eyes opened, as it were, by, by various people, including Thomas, including Paul Lister, who by this time had started his journey at Allerdale. Yeah. Um, so these were all influ early influences on Anders. Um, but Anders had the resources, of course, to make stuff happen really, really quickly. Um, and that's exactly what he's done over the last sort of 15 or 20 years. And, and now, you know, whether you like it or not, a walk up Glenfeshie might be appealing or palatable to some people and less so to others. But nobody can deny the cause and effect. Nobody can say this landscape hasn't transformed as a consequence of a reduction in grazing pressure. You might like that, you might not, but nobody can disagree with the change. I think it was about 2011, 2012. I hadn't been to Glenfeshie for 10 or 15 years. And I walked up there and the regen was so obvious. Yeah. The tree regeneration yeah. was so obvious. That's what made me, I rang up to the estate and said, what's going on? Yeah. And got into the, into the story. Yeah. And, and, and we, you know, we sit on the periphery of that, but of, of, we, we felt that change. I, I, I was going to say we've benefited from it. Ecologically speaking, we have benefited from it. But again, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, there's no doubt that the ability of the vegetation on our farm, and it is a farm, 
has, has changed beyond recognition, simply because of that reduction in grazing pressure. So the cull didn't happen here, but we've, we've, we've benefited from it. You're listening to the Windswept and Interesting podcast, talking to Peter Cairns from Scotland, the big picture. Peter's spread here in Glenfeshie actually lies close to the giant Cairngorms Connect nature restoration project. That combines landholdings, including the many thousands of acres of the Danish billionaire Anders Hochpolsen, run for him by the aforementioned Thomas MacDonald as Director of Conservation and Forestry. But Peter's place is actually not part of that Cairngorms Connect project, and I wondered how Scotland the Big Picture actually fits into that bigger picture. Our farm sits as part of one of Scotland the Big Picture's projects, which is the Northwoods Rewilding Network. Now, this is interesting, I think, because um, we set this up uh, in response to a couple of farmers, actually, that came to us in about 2019 and said, we, we love this rewilding stuff, but how do you do it? How, what, what gang do we join? And, of course, there wasn't one. So we set about creating a network specifically for small to medium-sized landholders, defined as between 100 and 1,000 acres. Now, one of the reasons for doing that was to dispel the notion that rewilding is just for big wealthy philanthropists or, or big NGOs. We wanted to democratise it. We wanted to make it more accessible. So the Northwoods Network, of which we're one partner, now consists of more than 60 land partners up and down the country, farms, crofts, community land holdings. 25% of the partnership are made up of community-owned lands um, and, and small estates. So the idea behind it is to make rewilding and the principles that underpin it more accessible for smaller landholders that perhaps wouldn't have the knowledge or the resources or maybe even the confidence to to declare themselves as rewilders. We provide the platform for them to do that. Rewilding is becoming almost a dirty word in the current sort of culture war climate that we have. Um, defend it. <laughs> defend it. Yeah, it is an interest. I mean, definitions do vary. You're absolutely right. And, and some of the purists would argue over the minute detail of what it is and what it isn't. We've never been really hung up about the word itself. There's two reasons predominantly that we... we hold on to it the first one is that the number of young people that see rewilding as hope hope that we might restore our degraded ecosystems hope that wildlife can come back and we all need hope it's a powerful motivator so that's one of the reasons we hold on to it the other is that we feel that any other term nature recovery ecological restoration which are routinely used now across the conservation community they just allow a little bit too much wiggle room for a dilution of ambition so our ambition is right up there at number 10 we may never ever realize that ambition but we retain fully the restored ecosystem yeah yeah but but walls and things yeah, yeah. I, I guess in in, yeah. A, in an ideal world but you know we're pragmatists we we recognize that even if that is going to come it's not going to come anytime soon but we retain that ambition that's where we think the scale and urgency is is required now you know if you come down from that 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 level you you might talk about ecological restoration which is what Cairngorms Connect use and they're doing you know 80 90 percent of principles that that apply equally to rewilding so we fully support that we just retain the right to um, not criticize them but retain the right to maybe point the finger that their ambition could be could be higher say they could do more they could do more or at least they could aspire to do more yeah. 
Um, and I think, you know, when you've got a little bit of division in between definitions, it, it just kind of dilutes the impact a little bit. So for the moment, we're, we're very, very comfortable using the rewilding word. Our tagline is rewilding for nature, climate and crucially for people. So despite popular misconception, we don't see people being excluded from this process. Quite the opposite. Um, but you're right. You know, rewilding has become a political football um, and there are people that love it and people that hate it. And we hope that most people, when they become better informed about what it is and what it stands for, they become supporters of it. And that's our job. Again, going back to driving support for rewilding. You know, I'm going to be brutally honest now. One of the reasons Big Picture, Scotland Big Picture came into, into existence was, was around yeah, the fear, the, the risk aversion that has been symptomatic of, of the conservation community forever. Um, you know, we're, we're pursuing a trial reintroduction of, of links, for example. Now, that's not because we claim to be experts in links or, or indeed any species reintroduction. The reason we picked up the baton is that nobody else would, despite 25 years of the conservation community talking about it. So we, we do have the advantage of being a small, fleet-footed, agile charity. And, and one of our values is to go where others can't or won't. Don't don't be paralysed by fear and by process. Um, so that was one of the sort of founding principles of SBP in the early years. Links, where are you going to do that? You've only got 150 acres here. Yeah, it's not going to be me doing it. Um, we, we have to work with other people, of course. And that's, you know, in the case of Links, obviously it's a major, major step forward in, 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 in the level of ambition. So we have to work with a broad range of stakeholders and where we are at the process at the moment is, is going through exactly that, working with stakeholders, everything from landholders who potentially could release links and, you know, wild land might be one of them, Cairngorms Connect might be one of them, um, through to sheep farmers who have, have, have obvious and legitimate concerns about their, their livelihoods. And, yeah. and it's a, again, it's not, it is about links and it is about sheep, but actually the broader picture is about what does what should Scotland look like? What could Scotland look like? Who's making those decisions to whose benefit and, and, and what time scale? All of these considerations around people are at the heart of this. The 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 links, the wolf, the pine tree, the beaver, the whatever it is, they're they're just pawns in that in that in that movement. So where in the West Highlands could there be a scheme similar to Cairngorms Connect in the East, linking up conservation minded landowners to create a huge wildlife refuge? Could it link up to the Cairngorms? Stay listening to find out more. We'll be back in one minute. But it is people here, isn't it? And it's getting people on board. And that's what your organisation is specifically here to do, to persuade people to, to, to bring things on board. Is there a danger that you end up watering things down? Is there a danger that, 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 that as I see with some conservation organisations, they, they go along with things things that things that government are saying or whatever and uh, in order to to get the dollar to get the backing to get the support of, of large organizations that, that that's always going to be a temptation isn't it um it, it, it's it's a challenge i i agree it is a challenge um and you know our job on a daily basis really is to push the envelope as hard and as fast as we can without alienating the very people that we need to take with us. And that, that line is wafer, wafer thin. Really, really difficult to navigate. Um, and that's a challenge on a daily basis. So I, I think in answer to your question, the day we become an organisation paralysed by fear and process is the day I'm out of here. Because unless we can have... We're not in the business of empire building. We're in the business of, of impact. 
And if we're not having impact because it's diluted by need for funding, need to be respected within the conservation community, whatever the criteria is, I'm gone. You know, we see our our USP, as it were, as as being fleet footed, as being, you might say, and I don't say this freely, but you might say unaccountable. You know, we see ourselves as agents of change in an environment that few others are able to to take that position because they're accountable to funders, to memberships, to boards, to stakeholders. We do have that that freedom, that agility. Um, it's not complete freedom by any means, but I think we have more than most. How are you funded? The same way that most charities are funded. We have uh, major donors. We have a, a range of, of, of general donors. We have trusts and foundations. We attract a certain degree of corporate income. Um, so our portfolio of income is not very different to the likes of Trees for Life or John Muir Trust or any other charity. It's just smaller. <laughs> our, our pot of money is smaller. <laughs> you have to be quite careful with corporate stuff, presumably. Yeah, we... Any, business, any donors, you have to make sure that they're perhaps not people who fund the Conservative Party and petrochemicals. Yeah, of course. Of course, we have a filter system like, like everybody else. You know, we, we subscribe to ethical fundraising like, like, like all, all charities or like most charities. Um, of course, we do that. But, but, but you, I think what you're prodding away at, which is a, a good point, is, <laughs> prod, prod. is, is the, the notion of sort of monetizing nature, if you like, taking donations from capitalists to fund nature recovery. And I get that. I get the what some people might describe as the vulgarity of that or the unpalatability of that. And I, I see the criticism across social media and I, I understand it and I sympathise with it. However, as I said earlier, we are pragmatists and it is estimated that there's a gap between the amount of money available from philanthropy and the public sector, which has been the traditional income streams of, of environmental charities, and the cost of ecological recovery. It's billions. It's 15 to 20 billion pounds. Where is that money coming from? If it doesn't come from the private sector, where is that money coming from? So organisations like SBP can have, you know, really ambitious aspirations about ecological recovery at a landscape scale, but that has to be paid for. So unless you take it from the private sector, where else is it coming from? So I suppose the sweet spot that we're trying to arrive at is harnessing the resources of the private sector, be it financial or entrepreneurial, funneling that into ecological recovery, but crucially then what comes out at the other end is benefits to local communities. Now, if we, that conveyor belt has started in some areas, but it's, 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 it's a bit sporadic and it's not yet lubricated smoothly. But if we can get that conveyor belt moving more efficiently, then that's got to be a win-win. So you're getting the best from the private sector, fueling ecological recovery, and then what gets generated at the other end is is benefits for local people persuading hard-headed financial investors to invest in something that doesn't benefit them but benefits the community yeah that's a that's a tough call unless you move into some sort of greenwashing it is a tough call and i think you know the the jury is out quite frankly about you know the question we often get asked is that you know i like this rewinding but how does it pay and there is no definitive answer to that question at the moment i'll be the first to, to concede that so this this whole space is evolving at, at, a, at a really rapid rate and it's growing arms and legs all the time. Greenwashing is something that's kind of crept into the conversation over the last sort of 12 months or so. And there are examples, there are really poor examples of the private sector either stepping in and buying land or fueling 
some sort of land use change that are ill-conceived, you know, and they result in poor ecological standards and they result in zero benefit or very little benefit to local people. I would argue that the mechanism can be exercised much more efficiently. So the mechanism is good, but the players within it and, and how they've utilised that mechanism has been... I don't think anybody sets out to create damage, but they've just been perhaps a little bit naive and a bit ill-conceived. So the principle of the private sector and ecological recovery and local communities sitting in, in, in tandem is a good one, but it's not yet it's not yet as efficient and as beneficial, as optimal as it could be. It's really difficult to do. I've mentioned this a few times in these podcasts, but I had a long conversation with Lorna Slater last year who was saying, I said, you know, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for the rhododendrons, which is, I know, my estimate is 400 million. That's, that was Forestry Inland Scotland four or five years ago to deal with that problem. And she said, it's all going to have to be done through private funding. But how the hell do you get people? There's no, there's no return on clearing rhododendrons. You know, there's, there's no way you can make that a financial investment unless you're getting government money put into mm. it. So how, how do you make a return on things like that? Well, it, de- it depends how you define a return. And of course, at the moment, we live in a, in a, in a society that, that, that is measured. You know, pu- public welfare is measured in GDP. That, that's that's how, how we measure our success as a society, which is a ludicrous barometer. But, but putting that aside, if you're looking for a return on investment, a financial return on investment, there's a big question mark around it. There's no question about that. There are a few dabbling in that space. Most of our corporate um, donors come from a, spl- a place of they want to be, yes, they want to be seen as being green in front of their customers, in front of their funders, in front of their stakeholders. They also recognise there are tangible benefits about attracting young, talented staff who care about this stuff, for example. Um, so there's a range of motivations. Not all of them are, are financially based. Not all of them are cynical. Um, some of them are. But but we do have a number of corporate donors who simply want to help or contribute to nature recovery in Scotland. No strings attached. There's a wedge of money. Go and do some good work with it. And there are those companies out there. And there's an increasing number of companies out there with a... I suppose you might call a social or an environmental conscience and want to and move away from this model of more, more, more all the time. And yes, they need to make a profit, but some of that profit is is channeled back into either, you know, into societal benefit, be it ecological recovery or, or some other mechanism. So we are seeing, a, a, I think, a bit of a, a step change in how businesses perceive themselves, how they perceive their role in, in society generally. And certainly those that are run by, dare I say it, younger people, um, have got that have got that on their radar from day one. Younger than you and I, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. In fact, yeah, I'm thinking of one of our donors whose who's MD is of our age, um, but it, actually the reason they came to donate to SBP was the sons of the MD, who said, you know, come on, Dad, you're, you're making a bit of cash here. You don't need to spend it all on fancy cars. Give something back. And that was the motivation from that younger generation. So that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. And do you have a job to do to persuade the younger generation? Or are they already all bought into that? It's, it's unrealistic to say everybody's bought into anything. I mean, we live in a very sort of fractured society, yeah, don't we? But I have to say, and going back to the, the retention of the rewilding brand on our arm, as it were, um, young people are tremendously excited about rewilding because it offers them it offers them hope, but it offers them the, the possibility I think they perceive it as the art of what's possible. They, 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 they're asking themselves, 
you know, they're, they're seeing stuff going on in Europe. They're seeing wolves return to Belgium, to France, to Italy, to, to Spain, to the Netherlands of all places, one of the most densely populated countries on earth. They're seeing forests expand. They're seeing rivers being restored. And they're saying to themselves, why not Scotland? Why can't we do this in Scotland? We've always take, I, you know, I hear it all the time. Yeah, but Scotland is different. But I've never had that explained to me. Why is Scotland different? Yes, culturally, it has its own characteristics like every other country. Physically, demographically, it's different. But there is absolutely no reason why ecological recovery can't take place here at the same scale and with the same speed that it's happening in Europe. We're in the beautiful outdoors outside your lodge, but we've got some nice aircraft noise there to accompany us. We'll, we'll carry on anyway. Um, the future, the future for you, the future for Scotland, the big picture. You might retire. What happens then? What, what are you going to do next? Yeah, I mean, we, we're, a, we're a young charity that has evolved, which has grown really, really quickly. It's been a very, very, very steep learning curve for all of us. Um, and we are, you know, in the process of safeguarding our future, bringing in process, those processes that I hate, but bringing in those foundations, those processes that will protect us if I go under a bus or, or retire. And the same applies to equally um, many of my colleagues. So, yeah, we're going through that journey. Um, it's a steep learning curve, as I say. Um, what I will say is that despite the fact we're very busy, despite the fact we're, we're, we're catching up with all sorts of things that we probably should have addressed a few years ago, um, the, the space within which we're working is hugely, hugely positive. Everything is full of opportunity. And I would not have been able to say that even five years ago, certainly 15 years ago. So there are some huge challenges. We know what they are. Um, within the rewilding space there are huge challenges and again we, we know what they are but the backdrop to all of this i think is a lot of people not just sbp but a lot of people doing some really fantastic work we mentioned cairngorms connect you'll be familiar with afric highlands we're involved in very early conversations a big landscape scale partnership over on the west coast um, there's a lot of people that want to contribute to this to this movement shall we say or this change um, is it easy? Is it quick? Absolutely not. But the backdrop is completely positive. So I think, you know, the future for, for Scotland, the big picture, the future for rewilding, I think you could probably capture in that one word, which, which is hope. You're very optimistic. I have to be optimistic because if you're, if you're not, then the energy, the passion, the creativity required to drive Scotland, the big picture and the rewilding movement forward is lost. You, 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 the way I look at it, you get out of bed in the morning, you have a choice. You do your best or you do nothing. And there's a lot of people in society that sit around complaining that the world isn't perfect. And of course, it's not. Um, you can only control what you can control. But I, I would argue that within those parameters, you do your best. You, you give of yourself the best you can. You can't control all of the outcomes. You can control some of them. But the alternative is doing nothing. And that, that's not going to affect change. That, that's, that's not an option for me. That would be normally where I'd end. But journalistic nosiness makes me think, big landscape partnership on the West Coast, what are you up to? Do you know, do you know as soon as that came out of my lips, I thought, no, no, you've, you've, you shouldn't have mentioned <laughs> this. I know where this is going. I'm trying to guess now. I'm thinking, uh, where, where could that be? OK, so, so there's been a, a half conversation going on for a long, long time, actually, as far as I can remember, around the La Harbour region. Um, now, that's a big, big area, but um, I'll just say kind of towards the east side of that. So there's a number of landowners over there, landholders over there, 
not not just the big players, but some of the smaller players as well, that have an appetite to come together to do something along the lines of Cairngorms Connect. Um, and, you know, if, if I was being overly speculative and overly ambitious, why not in 20, 30 years when that partnership is up and running, why not look at a corridor between that and Cairngorms Connect, you know, which would cut across sort of back of Lagan area and, and increase or improve ecological connect connectivity. So all of these things are possible. I, I think, you know, rewilding in Scotland, if you, if you look on it as a scale of one to ten, we're probably still at two, one and a half, two. It's still right at the beginning of the journey. Cairngorms Connect has a vision of 200 years. This potential partnership I'm talking about has a vision of 100 years. These things don't happen quickly. Nature doesn't recover quickly. Um, but at least the vision is there. The, the journey is laid out. The, the roadway is in front of us and, and it's up to us to travel it. Thank you for listening to me. If you like this podcast, share it. And if you want to give me feedback, you can find me on Facebook and on LinkedIn and on the weird, rather damaged social media network that once was known as Twitter, where I am at Scott Nature Call.